Welcome to the University of New South Wales, Canberra, Australian Navy History video and podcast series. Produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute. Thank you for joining us. For more information on this series, please visit the UNSW Canberra Naval Studies Group website. To find us, simply Google Navy Studies Group and UNSW Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. We hope you enjoy this podcast and return for others in the series. I'm Greg Swindon, Senior Naval Historical Officer at the Sea Power Centre Australia. This video and podcast episode discusses one of the most significant ships in the history of the Royal Australian Navy during World War II. This is the light cruiser HMO Sydney, the second ship to carry this illustrious name. Commissioned in the RAN in 1935, her exploits in the Mediterranean in 1940 were to make her a household name following her action at the Battle of Cape Sparta, where she played a leading role in the destruction of the Italian cruiser Bartolomeo Colleoni. In 1941, she returned to Australia to a tumultuous welcome by the citizens of Sydney. In this episode, we will cover the next part of her story, leading up to the action with the German raider Cormoran off the Western Australian coast on the 19th of November, 1941. To tell us about this fascinating story of HMO Sydney and a valuable World War II service, I have joining me Vice Admiral Peter Jones of the Naval Studies Group, whose book Australian Argonauts discusses Joe Burnett, a member of the first class to enter the RAN College and who commanded the Sydney in 1941. Mr Wes Olson, who is the author of two books about the famous cruiser, HMO Sydney in Peace and War and Bitter Victory, The Death of HMO Sydney. John Perryman, the Navy's historian and Director of Strategic and Historical Studies at the Sea Power Centre, who played a lead role in the search for the wreck of Sydney in 2008. And finally, online, we have Mr David Mearns, a world-renowned marine scientist who has specialised in deep water searches for historic shipwrecks, including HMS Hood, the German battleship Bismarck, and of course Sydney and Cormoran. His new book, Shipwreck Hunter, has recently been published. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Firstly, John, um, Sydney's left the Mediterranean in 1941 and she's returned home to Australian waters. What's happening in, that, in Australia's part of the world at that time? The strategic situation in Australia at that time was, was one of concern. We had most of our ships uh, from the Royal Australian Navy serving in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Mediterranean. Sydney was coming back, of course. But around Australia, we were starting to see the first signs of war coming into our waters. And the main threat was from German raiders. Um, in the preceding months, uh, a number of German raiders, the Orion, the Comet, the Penguin had all ventured into Australia's strategic area where they'd uh, led a fairly successful commerce raiding war. Some 53 ships had been accounted for. Uh, they'd also sowed mines around the Australian coastline and elsewhere in the Pacific. So, you know, our economic lifeline was being threatened by the presence of these German ships. The other thing, of course, was there was growing concern about the role that Japan may play in the war. Um, naval intelligence had been keeping an eye on this situation. There were growing concerns about whether uh, Japan would come into the war or not. And uh, of course, those concerns will be realised later on. But the attention was now on uh, what do we do about protecting our own shore and our own sea lines of communication. At that point, uh, with our ships deployed, Australia only had two cruisers 
and a couple of sloops on the Australian station and some ancillary vessels. So what we began embarking on was a uh, shipbuilding uh, endeavour to try and plug that gap and this is where we started to begin uh, to build in great numbers the, the Bathurst class minesweepers or corvettes as they were better known. So you had a situation that was changing and, and fears and concerns were growing. So when Sydney has come back to Australia to sort of um, bolster our defences, um, that offers a great sigh of relief for the Australian public because not only is one of our cruisers coming back to the Australian station, it is the apple of everyone's eye. It is HMAS Sydney, battle-hardened and with victory under her belt. Peter, what were the politicians thinking about at this time? So the most uh, strident um, advocate for increased naval protection in, in the Australia station was uh, the new Prime Minister, John Curtin. Even when he was uh, a leader of the opposition, but a member of the War Advisory Council, he'd been advocating time and time again for Navy and, and the government to think carefully about how they deploy their forces and to consider uh, bringing some forces from overseas to the Australia station to counter the, the growing German raider menace. And as John indicated, um, when the first naval member gave a briefing to the, uh, the council, said things will improve, we'll have Sydney coming back. But Curtin really wasn't happy because he, he wasn't happy that Perth had been allowed to go off station and go to the Mediterranean before Sydney came back. So really I think the key thing to bear in mind is that people like Curtin really saw the German raider threat as a, as a, a big issue and that the primary reason Sydney was coming back was to, to be able to bolster those defences against the German raiders. Yeah. Whereas Sydney returns to Australia, she stops in Western Australia first then goes on to Sydney. What, what happened when she came home, you know, this, the, after her great victories in the Mediterranean? Well, um, basically there was two forces at work. The city of Sydney wanted to celebrate the ship's achievements, particularly the sinking of the Colleoni. Uh, so they were looking forward to the ship's return so they could fate her and present medallions, a big brass plaque they wanted to put on the ship. Um, the Navy saw Sydney's return, the conquering hero, as a perfect vehicle for a recruiting drive. So what should have been a normal homecoming, ship comes into port, uh, crew get off, everyone's happy, uh, the crew's dispersed and, and that's it, everyone's happy. Um, the Navy wanted to turn into something bigger. So she did call at Perth, at Fremantle, sorry. They put on a, a camera crew, ABC recording unit, official photographer and official artist secrecy surrounded the ship's movement. The press weren't allowed to report that she was back in Australian waters. She got to, uh, into Port Jackson late on the night of the 9th, February. And in the early morning, the censorship was lifted. It was announced on radio and in the morning papers that Sydney was coming home that morning. Mm -hmm. So the public, the Sydney side, has really only had a couple of hours to wake up to the re realisation that their ship was home. Uh, next to kin, our loved ones are coming home. And uh, when Sydney was announced that she was due to dock at 10.30, um, Sydney Harbour was just lined with well wishes. Um, there was a huge crowd on the wharf, Circular Quay. She came into fanfare. 
and unfortunately all the next of kin waiting on the on the wharf had to be kept waiting because the governor general wanted to welcome the crew back the minister for navy wanted to welcome the crew back and it became this big event um, the crew were eventually allowed off and they met uh, in some cases infant children for the first time some of these guys had become fathers while the ship was away so it was a really joyous homecoming very much like what we have now when a ship comes back and the navy had the good sense to know we don't put on a parade, we don't have the medallion presentations on the same day, it's going to be too much. So they extended this homecoming another 24 hours. So Tuesday, she arrived on the Monday, Tuesday was just crazy. The uh, Lord Mayor, Alderman Crick, he went on board in the morning to unveil this big plaque, commemorative plaque, um, present tankards, silver rose bowl, and uh, the official sort of welcoming from the city of Sydney. But then the crew, most of them, 400, then had to go off and do a march through the streets of Sydney to the town hall. There'd be another presentation, and it was huge. There was an estimated 300,000 people lining the route, and the noise of the crowd drowned out the ship's band. They couldn't hear that. Confetti, the streamers, was so thick at times that Collins had to stop at one point and untangle his legs so he had to stop the entire column. And it was something that had never been seen before and I don't think it will be seen again. Um, that sort of a welcome. Then the, the contingent got to the town hall. Then you've got more speeches. Uh, Collins and ten representatives from the ship's company were uh, issued with, were presented with small medallions, replicas of the big brass plaque. And when all that was done and dusted, they still had to go off to lunch. So for the, for the crowd, the, the big moment came when the ship's company fell in again and they marched to the tune of Rule Britannia to the town hall where they had lunch. Um, afterwards, the crew was allowed to commence leave, but the poor old officers, they had to go to another formal reception and dinner that evening. So it really was 48 hours of madness. And Sydney was across all of the papers, all around Australia, censorship is forgotten until Wednesday. The curtain came back down again, Sydney went off quietly and it was back to war. But um, Sydney's crew, they were a little bit upset about one aspect of their homecoming. Their lucky cat, Mitty, had jumped ship in Fremantle and they were desperate to get this cat back. It was their lucky charm. And a few days after this big welcoming home event, they found out the cat was dead. And um, one sailor actually wrote in a letter home to his parents in, um, in Fremantle, we see this is a bad omen. And potentially it was. It was. Yeah. David, um, in April of 41, the, uh, the German auxiliary cruiser Cormoran enters the, uh, the Indian Ocean. Can you describe what sort of ship she was and, and who was in command? Well, the Cormorant started life as a freighter and it was requisitioned by the German Navy and converted into a raider. And the commander, Captain Detmers, actually oversaw some of the uh, arming of the ship uh, before it went out to sea. And it was quite a dangerous vessel. It had six 15-centimeter uh, guns. Um, it had two smaller... 3.7 centimeter anti-tank guns. It had two centimeter anti-aircraft guns. Um, the ship carried 340 mines that it could lay at different parts of the world. It had an aircraft that could do reconnaissance. 
and it also had um, uh, torpedoes that could be launched from the surface or from underwater tubes uh, surreptitiously. So on paper, it was uh, you know a very dangerous adversary for a vessel like um, the Sydney. It wasn't as powerful, but the real uh, disadvantages uh, was that it wasn't as fast. The, the absolute top speed was 18 knots, whereas Sydney's top speed was 32 knots. Uh, it wasn't armored in any way. So um, where Sydney had had the armor, armoring you would expect of a, a, a light cruiser. And, um, and also the guns weren't controlled by the sophisticated um, uh, director controls that, 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 that Sydney had. So at, at range, um, 10,000 10, meters plus, the Corman shouldn't have been a match for Sydney. And it was only up close where the action took place that the, the danger that Corman uh, uh, represented to Sydney could actually be, be felt. And, uh, and but importantly, um, Commander Deppers was a very experienced man. He was a 20-year veteran of the German Navy. Had served on uh, many, many ships. He had actually been on board Sydney um, at a time when he was in Australia, and um, and uh, and he ran a very tight ship. And one of the things that his crew said, he he drilled them constantly. Um, and, 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 you know, in terms of being able to uh, decamouflage the ship very quickly, turning it from its disguise as a number of different merchant vessels, they went around the uh, Indian Ocean disguising themselves as, and, and in, in a matter of seconds, literally in seconds, going from this disguised merchant vessel to this dangerous raider, and he would drill them and constantly drill them with that, and where to shoot. So when they came across uh, Sydney, you know, they were ready. And a lot of that came down to the way Captain Deppmers ran his ship. Thank you. Peter, it's, uh, it's May 1941. Captain Collins is posted off Sydney uh, while she's in, operating in Western Australian waters. And uh, Joe Burnett joins as a new captain. What's he like? What sort of man is he? So Joe was classmate of John Collins, as you've indicated. Um, in, in that class, the three standouts by that time was John Collins, Harold Tarkham and Joe Burnett. Joe and, uh, and John had done staff college together. They'd been promoted to commander at the same time. Um, and uh, this was the second job that um, Joe Burnett was replacing John Collins in um, when um, John Collins left as the Assistant Chief of Naval Staff in, in uh, the Naval Headquarters. He was replaced by Joe Burnett. Joe had done a very good job in the Naval Headquarters. Um, some quite important reforms, some of which were related to having better intelligence coordination amongst the services, mainly because of the German Raider threat. Um, so he was certainly alive to, to the, the, the threat of German Raiders on the Australia station. This was his first command, um, whereas John Collins, by the time he went to command Sydney, um, had uh, commanded the destroyer uh, Anzac. Um, he was a, a, probably a quieter individual, um, but when he came on board, um, the initial um, uh, thoughts were, you know, a very clearly very intelligent captain, um, 
took advice, quite thoughtful, um, and, 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 and that was very much uh, Joe Burnett, very smart operator um, and was highly regarded in the service when he took command. And, and this was seen as the plum appointment for a captain to go and command the Sydney. He had big shoes to fill, but he was a capable man. He was, yeah. Mm. John, Cormoran's in the, uh, in the Indian Ocean. Uh, she's loose, she's on the offensive. How well is, is she doing? The Cormoran is doing exceptionally well in the Indian Ocean. From the time that she broke out um, from the Atlantic, she had sunk 10 merchant ships and taken an 11th as a prize, put a crew on it, and sailed it back to Germany. So they had sprung this trap, if you will, um, many times. It was something, this wasn't new to them. They got in close, disguised as various merchant ships. Her, uh, her final disguise, of course, is as the, the Dutch freighter Strat Malacca. Um, they become very adept at drilling. Uh, as, as we heard from David, the, uh, the captain of um, Cormoran, Detmers, he was a person who really did drill that crew often and hard. Um, and that was interspersed with these victories that they'd had. So they'd actually put a lot of this training into practice. Um, the men at the guns, although they didn't have the, the complicated fire control systems that warships had, they had a very effective means of, of communicating with the guns and they knew what to do. Each person had a job to do and they knew precisely how to do it. Uh, their modus operandi would be to issue a warning. They'd have guns trained on the radio shack of merchant ships and if they didn't comply, it was a fairly standard sort of radar uh, uh, routine, if you will. If, if signals were heard to be being transmitted, they would put a round into the uh, wireless shack and disable communications. Mm -hmm. So by this stage, she'd been at sea for the best part almost a year and I think seen land probably once in that time. Uh, her breakout from the Atlantic, she'd resupplied U-boats, so she had another role to fill there. She'd taken prisoners from a number of these um, merchant ships that she'd intercepted. She transferred them to her supply ship, the Kalmarland, which had then taken them uh, into captivity. So you now had a very potent threat uh, making its way towards the Australian, Western Australian coast. So we're off the Western Australian coast, it's the 19th of November 1941. Sydney's escorted a, a convoy uh, to uh, the Swindon Strait and she's on her way back and she spots this suspicious merchant ship. So what's happening there? Um, essentially, uh, Sydney is steaming down her track, uh, heading towards Fremantle. Uh, Cormoran is uh, heading towards Shark Bay. Uh, so they're on a course, virtually a collision course. But um, their lookouts were alert. Um, Sydney and Cormans lookout probably made sighting about the same time at uh, 16.55 local time. Uh, Germans refer to 15.55 or 5 to 4, but for the local time, which has a bearing on how much light there is, uh, it's actually 5 to 5 when they first sight. And the distance is about 12 nautical miles, possibly more. Um, there's a bit of a sea haze. Um, and Cormoran's lookout can't quite make out what it is. It thinks he can see sails, probably the Sydney's Funnels bridge. He reports a sailing ship. And Sydney uh, would have seen Cormoran or seen this other vessel roughly at the same time. 
Uh, Cormoran goes to action stations, as is the normal procedure if there's a sighting at sea, no matter what it is. And presently, the lookout starts to see smoke development to the north, uh, two columns of smoke. And he's now thinking there's other vessels out there. Detmers starts to worry. He's holding his course up to this point, and he thinks uh, we've blundered into the path of a convoy and its escort. So uh, he decides this is uh, not a good situation. He's under orders not to engage with enemy warships because it can only be a one-way uh, outcome. So he turns. He turns around and heads towards the sun. Um, just before he does so, his lookout can confirm that the smoke is coming from a cruiser. They identify it as a Perth-class cruiser. Um, the smoke development, in my view, indicates that Burnett realised there was something on the horizon that wasn't quite right. According to a shipping plot, there should be nothing in the area. So the smoke development, I believe, is deliberate. Uh, Sydney did not normally make smoke. Her engineering department of stokers were well trained. I believe this was part of Burnett's attempt to draw this ship's attention. And it worked. Uh, the, op the opposing ship was seen to turn away and run towards the open sea, towards the setting sun. Um, what would have alarmed Burnett probably even more is the fact that this vessel on the horizon, 12 miles away, has seen him. Normally merchant ships are, are dumb. You can almost <laughs> run them over before they realise you're there. But this one is keeping a watch, a distant watch. Reacting at 12 mile is not normal. So I think from this point, uh, Burnett realises he's possibly found the radar that he's been looking for, possibly her supply ship. But as things develop, he, he realises um, this can't be a harmless merchant ship. David, uh, what's going on in, uh, in Captain Detmer's mind at this time when he's, he's spotted Sydney? Well, as Wes has indicated, the last thing that uh, Detmers would have wanted to do was tangle with, a, uh, with Sydney, or as he would call it, a ship of the Grey Funnel Line. Mm -hmm. uh, a raider's a real um, a benefit or, or, or use is, to, make, is to, be a to be a nuisance, to be a hassle, to take ships, but also to not be caught and not be sunk, and mm -hmm. to always keep the enemy on guard that there's a raider out there. And, um, and so that was the last thing that uh, Detmers would want to do. And so he was basically trying to get away. Uh, and of course he knew he couldn't outrun uh, the Sydney. Uh, he did what he could. He, he you know, uh, tactically he, he uh, steered into the, he went west. So it, it would have the advantage of the sun behind him that would make it more difficult for uh, Sydney to see what it was dealing with. So he was going to basically use every single trick in the book to um, either get away or to put Sydney off the scent um, uh, by maintaining this disguise as the Dutch uh, ships struck Malacca. And so uh, when the ships were uh, communicating with each other by flag, he instructed his, uh, the people handling the flags to to make it look like you were a greenhorn, that you've never done this before. And they messed up the signals and did all sorts of things purposely to try to uh, hold up this, this, uh, this ruse that they were, this innocent um, 
Dutch vessel. And uh, it wasn't until the last moment when Sidney asked for the secret call sign that Deppmans knew he had to fight. But he wanted to fight on his terms, not on Sidney's terms. And that was only when Sidney was as, as close as possible. So all the advantages that Sidney had in terms of her gunnery, her control, the, uh, and range uh, was lost. And, uh, and it was when he was asked this secret call signal. He turned to his, um, his first officer and said, um, do we have it? Do we know what it is? And he said, and they said, no. And he, they, they looked at each other and he said, well, what should we do now? And they said, well, you can only die once. And that was, um, that was the answer. And then he gave the order for his crew uh, to decamouflage and, and, and fire free, to start firing. And that opened the battle. Thank you. Peter, uh, obviously no one from Sydney survived that action, but what do you think was going on in Captain Burnett's mind at that time as he's approaching uh, what he thinks is a, a suspect vessel? Yes, so the things we do know is that when he approached Cormoran, he was doing it in the classic approved way you'd approach a suspicious vessel. That is, you approach from the stern, um, and what that does is it means that if the, that suspicious vessel is a warship or a raider, that they've got a limited number of guns that they could bear. Also, you're presenting a minimum profile, just a head-on profile. So he did that. Um, what you would expect a cruiser captain to do then is that they would have worked out in their minds, at what range do I need to have resolved the identity of this ship? before I actually do something. So in this case, um, it's about 19,000 yards was the maximum effective range of the German 5.9 inch gun. Um, and so by that stage, he had to resolve that issue. Um, and what should have happened is, if he, if he still hadn't worked out the identity of that suspicious vessel, to basically maintain that range beyond that that danger uh, limit, if you like. But he continued on. Um, and um, you could argue perhaps just the range got away, you know, before you know it, you're sort of closer than what you thought. That sometimes happens at sea. Um, but my judgment is that he, he, in his mind, he had just worked out that this guy was benign um, and that he didn't really believe that this guy, by, the, by certainly he would have been suspicious at the beginning, hence that, that approach, but the fact that he kept coming in and getting closer, he must have assumed that this guy was a, just a, a merchant ship. That's my judgment of it. The, the, the other useful point is John Collins wrote a letter to the official naval historian post-war and he said you've just got to be mindful of that time of day as Wes has described. He, he could have sent a signal to Navy headquarters, to, to Navy office, to say, are there any raiders in this area? Are there any merchant ships in this area? But th the time wouldn't have allowed him to get a response back. So he, he had to resolve this in a, in a really short amount of time. Also, Sydney didn't have radar. He had to maintain contact of a darkened merchant ship or ship at night um, at 
a distance would have been virtually impossible. So he, if he just held off and just let um, Cormoran go, he may not have been able to relocate him in the morning. So he had to resolve it, but I think the overriding thing was he'd, he'd just judged that this was a benign merchant ship. John, so Sydney's close to about a thousand yards or less than a kilometre from Cormoran, and then Cormoran opens fire. You know, what's going to happen at that range? Well, look, that's the naval equivalent of, of point blank range. But before I get to that, I'd just like to pick up on one, one point um, on what Peter was saying. I agree with Peter. I think that in his mind that he probably had um, reconciled that this, this ship may not have been a raider. Yeah. And it's not about it so much as what Burnett didn't know. It's also worth a look at what Burnett did know. And when Burnett was the Assistant Chief of Naval Staff in Melbourne, he took a great interest in every part of the headquarters that he was in charge of, and in particular, the mercantile movement section. And that was responsible for plotting all of the uh, merchant ship arrivals and departures from the Australian station. And he'd been there on a number of occasions to see that work being undertaken. And he'd actually witnessed vessels appearing on the Australian station, mm -hmm. which were not on what was known as the VAI, the vessels in area indicated. So checking the VAI, as it was known, and seeing a ship known as the, the Strat Malacca wasn't on it, isn't absolute proof that it wasn't expected. So in some cases, I do wonder whether you know, his knowledge of that may have added to the confusion. You see where I'm coming yeah. from? But that's all inconsequential now, because Sydney has rescinded her advantage of range. She is now almost abreast of Cormoran, a little more over 1,500 yards. And she does have, though, all four of her gun turrets trained on the Cormoran. When the action um, opens and Detmer's orders decamouflage, fire free, the very first shots fired from uh, Cormoran are at Sydney's bridge. And the punishment, it seems, to have come from the uh, flat gun that was mounted mm -hmm. on the bridge. Um, that would have undoubtedly taken out the brain of that ship. Bridge staff, Burnett. Um, there was a flurry of activity seen from Cormoran just moments to the um, action taking place. So it, it could be assumed that at the very last minute they realised that something was up because the Germans did describe a flurry of activity. It wasn't um, initially a one-sided fight. Uh, to Sydney's credit, she got a full broadside away. Disappointingly, that broadside went high and over uh, Cormoran. So had that struck, this Sydney would have had a much different, uh, sorry, this story would have had a much different outcome, but that wasn't the case. Uh, and by that point, um, this well-trained raider was basically hosing down Sydney's deck with two centimetre anti-aircraft weapons. Now, we're not talking about 303 rifle bullets here, we are talking about ammunition designed to knock aircraft out of the sky mm. at thousands of feet. So you can imagine the sort of damaging effect that that's have when it's being trained on a warship at the equivalent of point blank range. The 15 centimetre guns, they're also in action. Um, they have been, uh, they know their targets um, and they've been well directed also. So you've now got this desperate situation where the blows are being traded, but from the outset, it could be argued that it was a one-sided encounter. But Sydney still got some rounds away. Yes, she did. Yep.
So, Peter, Sydney's obviously very badly damaged, and how did she eventually meet her end? So, thanks to David's efforts in terms of finding Sydney, and then the excellent photos that were taken of, uh, of the wreck of the Sydney on the bottom of the Indian Ocean, the defence science organised defence scientists have been able to do a very detailed analysis of the damage of Sydney on, on, onto Sydney. So Sydney um, came round in an arc, semi out of control, and sustained further um, hits from the cormoran. Um, the scientists estimate there's, there was around 87 hits of, from Cormoran's main armourette. And, and um, I think she was torpedoed as well. She was torpedoed, mm. and uh, so that was a torpedo hit her in the bow section. Um, and uh, the estimation is that um, having sustained all that damage and with a reduced ability to um, deal with that damage because of the loss of senior people, a lot of the fire mains would have been out, pumps would have been ineffective, um, that uh, between two and a half and four hours after that engagement, she would have taken on so much water that she sank and the bow section being weakened from that um, torpedo hit then broke off and she uh, went to the bottom in two, two pieces. With all 645 men? With, uh, well, at least one person, one sailor, was able to make it to a, a raft. Um, that raft drifted to Christmas Island, um, and, uh, but he, he had died by that, that time. So David, um, it's not a one-sided battle, obviously Cormoran had the, the lion's share of it, uh, but she was damaged, and how did she end up sinking? Well, ultimately, um, Deppmers decided to scuttle Cormoran because the hits that Sydney uh, did have, uh, that did actually score on, on Cormoran, put her out of action. And we know that those, um, those hits came from the after turrets, X and Y, uh, because uh, Deppmers said uh, himself where they had come from. And not only that, he had described the Sydney's fire uh, as good and quick. And, and mind you, this is after Sydney had already taken uh, the torpedo uh, hit to the bow. A and B turret are out of action. Most likely everybody in A and B turret are dead. The bridge has been hit multiple times by the 3.7 inch gun and possibly one of the 5.9 inch guns. Most likely, everybody in the bridge is dead. And so uh, the, the people who were left in X and Y had to fight in local control. And we know that because um, their ports were open, their visual ports were open. And we found uh, X turret pointed in the right direction where it would have been aiming at, at Corman. And one of these, um, one of these hits, um, uh, penetrated the funnel, and, and Corman had this complicated funnel design where it pumped oil up into the funnel, and, and this oil caught fire and, and flooded down into the engine room and killed about 25 men in the engine room and basically disabled uh, the, the engine room. So the ship was out of commission. It wasn't going to sink, but it wasn't going to go anywhere, and they were sitting ducks. Not only that, it was on fire, and it had 340 uh, mines uh, and the after holds, which uh, was something on the order of about 100 tons of TNT. So uh, Deppmers had no option but to 
scuttle his ship and, and take to the boats. And that started a long process without power and lights where they had to manhandle and using tackle to get these heavy, heavy boats out of the cargo holds and get everybody into them. And then ultimately they got away just about midnight when the, uh, the ship blew up. And uh, looking at the wreckage on the seabed, it's almost miraculous that they got away without this, any of this debris raining down on them and hitting one of their boats because we literally found bits of cormorant spread over in a distance of 2.5 kilometers. It was you know, one of the most destroyed um, shipwrecks I had ever seen. So as Sydney's been lost, uh, we've got the German interpretation of what occurred, but you've got a different uh, take on, uh, on the events. Yes. Um We've accepted the German account fully. Um, the wrecks, the damage sustained by Sir Sydney uh, is consistent with what the Germans said. So that has led us to believe that everything they've told us is the truth. Uh, I don't think they fully understood what was going on, particularly from the time when Sydney appeared on the horizon to the time she was sailing parallel 1500 metres away, then the Germans opened fire. That intercept phase um, they, they provide information as about what was signalled from Sydney. They provide information about what they signalled back. Um, but they don't understand, I believe, what was going on in Burnett's mind. And that's the challenge to modern historians, to try and work out what was happening. Why did Burnett put his ship in that suicidal position? If we look at what the Germans actually said, uh, Sydney approached fine on their quarter, at a range of about eight or nine nautical miles, they, they told Sydney that they were the Strat Malacca. Well, that ship was not on Sydney's plot. We know from recent research that there was nothing on Sydney's plot. There was no uh, friendly vessel expecting that area. The Germans said that they'd sailed from Fremantle. They were going to Batavia. If Strat Malacca had sailed from Fremantle, uh, that information would have been relayed to Burnett. It would have been relayed to Sydney, included in the twice-a-day twice uh, daily updates of the intelligence situation, where the ships were. Uh, clearly, the Germans gave the wrong answer. They didn't understand at the time, but they gave the wrong answer. So Burnett had to assume that this ship is bogus. It's not who it claims to be. It can't possibly have sailed from Fremantle. And as he got closer, um, even the outline of the ship would have given the game away. Strat Malacca had four Samson posts, uh, lifting derricks, basically posts for the listing derricks. Uh, Cormor only had four. And it, Burnett would have been able to see that in the fading light, in the difficult light conditions. So I believe he would have ruled out any possibility the ship is genuine. It's not friendly. He's only got two choices left. It's either the raider he's looking for or it's supply ship. And his actions from there on lead us to believe that he somehow ruled out that he was dealing with the, the radar, because there's no way on earth he would have taken his ship into 1,500 metres into dangerous territory uh, if he believed he was dealing with a warship, an auxiliary warship. The fact he didn't launch his aircraft, it's a fire risk. Uh, even the Germans said that the aircraft was prepared for takeoff, but then not launched. If Burnett thought he was dealing with a, a radar, and he was about to go into action, he would have got that aircraft off his ship. 
he would have used it for gunnery spotting or at the very least got it off the ship so it's not a fire risk. And that's our problem. We, we can see what's going on from what the Germans are telling us, but when we look at the, the information, the intelligence that was available to Burnett, uh, it doesn't add up. So I'm, I'm convinced that he believed he was dealing with the Raider supply ship. And at that point, his duty was to capture. He had to prevent this vessel scuttling. And again, his opening salvo, according to the Germans, it was high, it was supposedly going to miss. But Burnett had a well-trained gunnery department. The gunnery officer was experienced from the Mediterranean days. He was on top of his game. It, it defies belief that he could have missed at 1,500 metres. What the Germans do add a little bit is, oh, yes, we had our boats destroyed very early in the battle. Uh, funnel was damaged. Uh, and when you look at it, there's a very good chance that Sydney's first salvo didn't miss. It went through the boat deck. It destroyed her lifeboats, went through the funnel, possibly not exploding, detonated in the sea behind the ship. And that led the Germans to believe that Sydney's salvo missed. But if we look at the instructions being promulgated by naval intelligence and the Admiralty, it was part of the recognised anti-scuttling procedure. You have to try and prevent a ship scuttling and one way to do that is to destroy the ship's boat so the crew can't scuttle an abandoned ship. And I think that's where we're at. I think we can now almost safely say that Burnett knew in his own mind he wasn't dealing with a raider. He went in close because he thought he was dealing with the raider supply ship. And if he could capture that supply ship, that would possibly lead to the destruction of the raider. Um, but we will never really know. Thanks, Wes. So, John, Sydney's been lost. It appears with no survivors. How did this... How did people in Australia react to the lucky ship from the Mediterranean, the glory ship of the REN, gone? Look, this, this heralded a very dark period for the Royal Australian Navy. Um, uh, Sydney's loss resonated throughout the entire country. Um, there was hardly a town or city in Australia that didn't know someone or have someone serving in Sydney. Uh, her adventures in the Mediterranean had been followed and celebrated by many. She'd been adopted by Fremantle and the Western Australians. She'd also was adopted by the city for which she was named for. So it was a devastating blow to Australia. This ship that had been sent home specifically to bolster our naval defences was now gone. And other ships were to follow in short order, uh, remembering that the following month the Japanese entered the war. So this, this was the beginning of a very, very dark time. The fact that there were no survivors from HMAS Sydney um, was, was almost beyond belief. In fact, it was, it was completely beyond belief that not one person could have got off this. And um, this, this began, you know, um, a number of concerns about, you know, whether the German raider had received help or not. Um, evidence has since shown that she received no help from, from anyone else, that, that this action was fought solely by Cormoran uh, between herself and Sydney. But it certainly left, um, you know, a cloak of doom and gloom over the Australian population and the Royal Australian Navy. Um, the Australian Navy wasn't a big navy and just about everyone serving in it knew someone in Sydney. Where's Sydney sunk, Cormoran sunk but she's got survivors. 
how does the rest of the world now find out what has happened? Um, the world should have heard about it on the morning of the 23rd of November. Uh, Aquitania troop ship uh, was coming back from Singapore and she stumbled across a raft load of Germans, uh, picked them up and they explained that uh, they'd been involved in action with a cruiser. Um, Captain Gibbons, the master of the Aquitania, um, decided to keep his mouth shut. He decided to keep maintaining wireless silence because he thought if he broke wireless silence it might be interfering with some sort of a naval action. He assumed the cruiser was still afloat and um, so he said nothing. So it wasn't until the following afternoon on the 24th of November that uh, the shell tanker Trochus stumbled across another raft load of Germans and uh, they were telling a similar story. Uh, the captain of the Trochus was uh, concerned that he had I think it was about 25, 26 Germans now on his ship, naval men. So he broke wireless silence, informed the uh, commander of chief uh, China station at Singapore that he'd recovered this uh, raft load of Germans and he wanted guards. He wanted so guards it's five days after the action. Five full days after the battle. Yeah. And um, yes, that sort of initiated the a full scale search. Um, which didn't get underway until the next afternoon. A, a search had been commenced on the 24th out from Fremantle towards Geraldton, uh, just looking for the ship. They assumed she was just late coming down. It wasn't until the, uh, the naval authorities realised that Sydney had been in action, they thought we'd better investigate further and they commenced a much larger search, which resulted in the discovery of 318 members of Cormoran's crew but nothing from Sydney. So Peter, the, the loss of a modern cruiser, particularly against a radar, was, well, unexpected. But were there similar instances during the, during the war? There had been. Um, there had been instances where uh, warships had got too close to a merchant ship before um, getting positive identification. So for example, Captain Frank, Frank Getting in the Knibler had got within a mile of a merchant ship um, to the consternation of, um, of some of his uh, ship's company before identifying that ship. That ship turned out to be a merchant ship um, and there wasn't a problem. But there, there had been a number of cases like that, but uh, probably the most two notable ones were uh, the Leander, the cruiser Leander, got within a mile of an Italian merchant ship, which actually was the uh, merchant cruiser Ram 1. Ram 1 opened fire. Its opening salvo um, missed Leander. Leander's opening salvo hit Ram 1. And so the result was um, a reverse. Of it the... was a reverse. But that was a, a real warning signal. Um, and uh, you had a situation where uh, Captain Farncombe in uh, Canberra on receipt of, of a report from his aircraft that the merchant ship that he was uh, investigating looked like an armed merchant cruiser. He had f uh, opened fire on that ship, the, the Ketty Brovik, um, at some distance and in fact was castigated by mm. uh, his uh, British Admiral in charge of that station for wasting ammunition. Um, so what that highlighted was that in some naval officers' minds, they didn't fully appreciate the lethality of a modern German um, 
uh, merchant cruiser. Um, on the other side, you had uh, uh, HMS Cornwall, heavy cruiser like the Canberra. She engaged the Penguin in a, um, a spirited engagement for over half an hour. Uh, eventually, um, the mines that David talked about in the Cormoran, they were uh, ignited in the Penguin and blew up to considerable loss of life. But that, uh, in the early part of that engagement, Cornwall was in quite some difficulty. At the end of that series of incidents, um, and of course Sydney being the, the most terrible from a, the Navy's perspective, the, the British Navy came up with written guidance to commanding officers about how they should deal with the, the raider threat and to be much more circumspect in dealing with these quite potent ships. So David, the, the wrecks of the two ships were uh, unlocated for a number of years and then obviously in uh, 2008 uh, your search uh, uh, found them. Uh, what were the greatest challenges for, for you and your team in actually getting, uh, finding these two vessels after so many years? Well, it was a, it was a project that was actually snake bit um, in terms of lots of challenges we were facing that we, we, we didn't expect. Um, um, even before we actually got out to sea, we had a, a serious issue with the ship where an, an oil leak nearly uh, uh, put our expedition vessel on fire. We didn't even get out of port. We had to get back in. So we were losing days right from the beginning. And, and that just basically went on the entire expedition. Um, remarkably, uh, we found both wrecks in a, in, a, in a short period of time. Uh, I think the number of, uh, I, I had once calculated, I think uh, active searching that it took us to find the Corman was something like 64 hours. And then after that, uh, it took us 67 hours to find Sydney. And then when you include the time that we spent with the ROVs filming the wrecks, uh, about, we only used about a third of our time at sea uh, productively working. The rest of it was spent dealing with all these issues, including not just one cyclone, but we had two of them. One chased us around Shark Bay for a while, or just off of Shark Bay for a while, and then another one chased us out of port in Geraldton, and we had to uh, we had to face that running up to the site. And then we just had uh, equipment failure after equipment failure after equipment failure. It, it, it started with the sonar, and it continued through the ROV. And, it was uh, just a, a frustrating, um, uh, a, really a frustrating uh, project to deal with, and and it and it put us at risk uh, many times. Um, had we made the not not made the right decision, or things didn't go our way, um, you know, the whole project could have really just cratered, and and we wouldn't have found anything. And it was only because we had a, a large enough budget. Um, and enough time to deal with all of these uh, these setbacks because the amount of time that we were working was actually very small. So it wasn't the, 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 the depth, it wasn't the difficulty of the search box, it wasn't how far we were offshore, it was relatively, um, relatively simple. And both wrecks, as soon as we saw them on a the screen, we knew what they were. So um, it happened, uh, on one hand, remarkably smoothly. On the other hand, it was a nightmare of a project, and, um, and it just—it just—it frankly, what it did is it made 
our um, our happiness and our elation at finding both wrecks so much greater because we just thought nothing would ever go right for us. So when we found the wrecks, it was it was quite remarkable and how fast we did it. And that was the surprising thing. Uh, and and the public were even more surprised because the way the news was released. One day Corman was located, the next day Sydney was located. They thought we did it day after day, but it, in reality there was about four days in the in the middle. So um, I'm just I'm just uh, was just very relieved um, that we were able to get past all of those difficult times and 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 you know and find both wrecks. I understand a fair bit of research went on uh, before the search was conducted in order to identify the best possible location of Cormoran and once Cormoran was found that would make Sydney easier to find? That's it. It was, we, Cormoran was a means to an end. It was the point to Sydney. All the navigation information from the Germans were in relation to their own vessel and of course because nobody survived from Sydney we only had one side of the story and this was the real problem. You could either believe the German accounts and decide to search where Captain Detmers and his crew um, uh, very roughly said that the ship had sunk, or you could say that the Germans were liars, which many people did say, and many people didn't trust um, trust that information. They thought they were trying to hide, you know, that basically they 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 sank uh, Sydney and killed all the crew in a very illegal way, and were facing but would be facing war crimes if the ships were found, and so for that reason they. Uh, they, they gave out false information. So that, that was the sort of status quo for, for a long period of time until, until the research that I did, the research that Wes did, uh, and was agreed with other people that, you know, that the German positions were, were creditable and they were precise enough that a search could be mounted. And, and, and that, that took a number of years not just to do that research, but also to convince the authorities, and by that I mean the Navy, to actually um, uh, reverse their standing policy, which was that they would not support a search, uh, a government-funded search, because there wasn't any agreement. There wasn't a consensus of opinion about where to conduct that search. And really, this is where John steps in, frankly, as an unsung hero, to internally inside the Navy, get those arguments through to the right people all the way up to the top of the government through the Navy that, um, no, these people know where to search. They have a creditable plan. They have a good organization. This is the Finding Sydney Foundation. And they could do it. And when that money came, you know, we were able to do it. But it was a, it's a, it's a remarkable story. And I've spent my career doing this. And nothing comes close to Sydney and every aspect of it. Thank you, David, and thank you for joining us, and, uh, and good luck with the sales of your new recently published book. Gentlemen. Well, my pleasure, thank you. As we finish off, is there anything that, uh, with the Sydney Cormoran action that you'd, you'd like to add, John? I think Sydney's, um, Sydney's story stands alone in the annals of the RAN. Um, it's a bittersweet story, um, as we've heard, the successes in the Mediterranean and her untimely demise in home waters. Um, I think uh, for me the most satisfying thing is that the wreck has, has been found and the, the graves and the tomb of those men has been commemorated and more importantly it's now protected under the 1976 Historic Shipwreck Act. So uh, 
I think that's a, a fitting, fitting way to, to finish. Peter. When uh, Sydney came back to its tumultuous welcome in Sydney, um, a reporter uh, spoke to one of the sailors um, and uh, the sailors said the thing that um, struck them so much in the Mediterranean was how lucky they were. Mm. And what they were fearful was, was the luck would desert them when they needed it most. And unfortunately, that's what happened. Wes? Yeah, David's discovery of the wrecks, uh, particularly Sydney, closes uh, this chapter. But what is remarkable about Sydney's wreck is it's essentially a time capsule. It's exactly the same as how it finished the battle. She sank, she went to the bottom, the battle damage is there, the fires, you can see evidence from the fires. We've got a ship that is preserved for posterity. We can see the agony that that ship went through. We can see what that crew went through. And I think that is going to be a lasting memorial to that ship and her company. Thank you. Sadly, that's all we have time for today. Uh, my thanks to uh, David Mearns from overseas, to John, Peter and Wes for joining us and adding their insights uh, into this activity. My thanks also to you for joining us. We look forward to you, to your company for the next episode. Bye for now.